It's Monday night. It's 8 o'clock, and it's Health Watch Radio. I'm your host every week, Dr. Jacques Dweck. Tonight, we have a special guest. He's a cardiologist, Dr. Jason Esses, and we're going to be talking tonight about stress test exercise, and or however you call it. Do you have another name for it? I don't know what else you call it. Hi, Jack. How are you? It's good to be back. Uh, we call it... Stress tests in general, and then there are right. different types of stress tests. Oh. Exercise is one of them. Okay, so what are the different types? So, what is a stress test? We'll start, what is a stress test? How many types there are? Why do we do stress tests? When do we not do stress tests? So, a stress test is a way for us, the cardiologists, to determine how much reserve, so to speak, the heart has, how, how healthy the heart is. Uh, what we do is we have patients either exercise on a treadmill, that's the typical way to do it, or we have some medications that can do it, but it essentially increases the heart rate, increases the blood flow in the arteries around the heart, and that puts a stress on the heart. Now, why does that put a stress on the heart? And some people think actually a stress test is, you know, I ask them, so we is it okay if we do a stress test? I think you need a stress test. Oh, I have a lot of stress every day. I have too much stress. I think stress is more like an emotional, psychological thing, but it's not. Stress is a way for us to test reserve of the heart. How do we do that? The heart has arteries around it, coronary arteries. Now, think of a straw. Think of, the, of a straw like an artery. When it's nice and, and open, completely patent, as we'll say, it is easy to blow through it, easy to suck up some uh, liquid, to blow liquid through it. It's easy. Now, let's say it was, uh, you know, let's say it, it, it was to get blocked. 30%, 40%, 50%, up to 60%, it's still probably not too bad, not, you know, not a big deal to get blood through it. Once you hit a threshold of 70% blockage. Wow, too much. Now, when I say blockage, it's like, imagine looking down the straw and uh, you estimate, let's say, the diameter, you know, from side to side. How much of that di diameter is, is, is blocked off is now, let's say, a cholesterol plaque. So that's what we call when we think of blockage, 70%. That's a lot. And the blood flow has to get through it. It's hard for the blood, throw, blood flow to get through it when it's 70%, 80%, 90%. The heart has to work harder. When it, ha when it hits that point, there's not enough blood flow going through. 70%. We can either cause that to happen by putting a patient who has a type of blockage on a treadmill, and we say, okay, now let's see how far you can go. Let's exercise. And they say, no big deal. I do it for half hour. Uh, I do it three miles an hour, three and a half miles an hour. No big deal, half hour every day. The difference in our stress test, we had a little incline. Wow. We, get, uh, we had a 10% grade incline. And the patients, they start to uh, exercise. <laughs> they huff and puff. They're like, oh, no big deal, no big deal. They get to wait a minute. Oh, there's an incline here. It's not so easy. So what we do is we get the heart rate up, we get the blood pressure up, and we make them work. Now we, wait, that blood pressure is going up because it normally goes up only, or is it because of the blockage? So the normal response to exercise is an increase in blood pressure. Increase in blood pressure, increase in heart rate. And we expect it. If there's an exaggerated response that's too high, okay, it's abnormal. The, the heart doesn't like it. Now, if there's an unusual, if there's a fall in the blood pressure, that's not normal. That's actually one of our warning signs that tells us, okay, we got to stop the test. That actually tells us that this patient likely has significant disease. Now, so we put the patient on the treadmill, 
and they're connected to the monitor, and we see how far they can go. And there's an expected heart rate for every patient, depending on their age. We have a simple formula. It's 220 minus age. That's what we use. We say, okay, you're 60, uh, let's say you're a 60-year-old guy. Not you, Jack, but so <laughs> you look like you're 15. <laughs> but uh, let's say a 60-year-old guy, 220 minus age, we'll get to 160. That's your maximum predicted heart rate. That's what we would expect. Now, for a stress test, we want someone to get up to 85% of that. So let's say it's another minus 24, that's 15%. So we're talking about uh, 136. So we say, okay, your target heart rate is 136. You got to get up to that. For us to consider it a good test, you got to hit 136 beats per minute on the stress test. Now, some people make that without a problem. Some people, it's hard to make. If someone is very, you know, the heart rate's uh, high to begin with, they're kind of one of those stressed out guys all over the place. The heart rate's always high. The blood pressure's always high always high, it's not such a big deal to get up to 136. Someone's very calm, they're 60, they're a good athlete, not so easy to get up to 136. But they'll get there. Right, but getting your heart rate up seems like easy if you have a problem. Right, so if you have a problem and you're either your heart can handle it, you're not conditioned for exercise, the heart rate can get up pretty quickly and the blood pressure will, will, will go up. What we look for in addition to the heart rate and the blood pressure, we look at the patient. Actually, it's the first thing we do. We see how does the patient look. The patient looks okay. Great, continue. But, you know, there's certain, certain signs. You know, when the patient's exercising healthily, no big deal. When the patient starts to grimace, they're breathing a lot faster, they don't look. There's not, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a look that they don't, they don't look good. When they have that look, they say, okay, maybe this is the point and that uh, we have to stop the test, or that's the point that they're talking about that we say we have to do stress tests. And we'll talk about why they have to do a stress test in a moment. But once we hit that point of 136 beats, they get to that, that's good. Now, I would expect someone, let's say 60, to go seven minutes, eight minutes on the treadmill. Now you're saying seven minutes, eight minutes, no big deal. I go to half hour, you know, half hour on the treadmill. When we do it, every three minutes, it gets a little faster and a little steeper. And that's really where the work is. So let's say they get up to 136 and they do okay in the stress test. That's just what we call a regular exercise stress test. Now let's say someone couldn't exercise. They have a, a foot problem or they know they can only go one block before they get short of breath. And it's up to deter us to determine what's going on. Patient comes in with shortness of breath. They don't feel so good. A little chest tightness. They smoke. They have some lung disease. They might have some heart disease. Who knows? They're, they're a diabetic. All these things can cause problems. So how do we know what to do? How do we know? Is this a heart issue? Maybe the patient smokes too much. Maybe the heart is fine. Smoking is not good for heart. Right. But it's possible to be okay, but you should not smoke. So that patient will do what's called a pharmacologic stress test or a chemical stress test. In that case, we can't stress the heart. We can't get the heart to increase its blood flow, its heart rate, by exercising them. So we'll give a medication that increases the blood flow to the heart. It does that in a way of actually dilating the vessels, but it will increase the blood flow. Now, if there's a blockage in the heart, even if you increase the blood flow, it'll still be hard to get the blood to go through the vessel, through the blockage. So that's the way we stress the heart. The problem is, it's hard for us to tell just by looking at the patient or looking at the, the monitor, so to speak, when we hook the patient up, 
what's going on. So a patient who gets a chemical stress test, we have to add pictures to it, imaging. What's that? Well, many of you have probably heard of a nuclear stress test. So a nuclear stress test is when we take the stress test part, which is either the exercise or this pharmacologic, and we, at the end of that part, at the end of the stress part of the test, we inject what we call technically a radioisotope. It's a tracer. It's, a, it's, it's something that we can, it's like contrast. It's like a label that goes through the blood. It's a tracer. It goes into the blood, goes to the vessels in the heart, and then the heart muscle takes up this radioisotope. And if the v vessels, if the arteries are completely open, all the blood flow, and there are three main, three main arteries, if the blood flow goes evenly throughout the heart, is evenly distributed, so then, the, then this tracer will be taken up by the muscle evenly. And then it gives off some radiation, and there's a special camera which you have to sit under, lie under for 15, 20 minutes that picks up this radioactivity. If there's equal distribution of blood flow, all the arteries are open, then there's equal distribution of the radioactivity. And it goes pretty much to the heart. It doesn't really go to the other vessel, or the other parts of the body. So where, where are you injecting it? You just injecting so you inject it into the arm. You're injecting it into an intravenous, a regular intravenous. But it has affinity for the, for the heart muscle? That's correct. So the blood flow, it returns ejecting into, into a vein, and the vein, the blood flow in a vein, returns back to the heart, and it selectively gets taken up by the heart. We tell patients not to eat because anywhere there's blood flow, there's increased blood flow, let's say, to the uh, intestines if you eat. So we tell patients not to eat. So we don't get too much blood flow going to the eat. So most of the blood flow goes to the heart. And that's where, the, that's where it gets taken up. And essentially, it's the first muscle that takes it up. With those pictures, we can look and see, okay, are there blockages or not? So we'll take pictures when someone is finishing their stress test, and we'll compare it. We'll do the same exact thing to someone who we call was resting. They come in, they don't exercise, they get the injection, they wait a little bit, they take pictures. So when the person is at rest, then there's blood flow that goes throughout the heart. No stress on the heart at that point. There are pictures that are taken, and the radioactivity is evenly distributed. So now we say, okay, what happens when we stress the heart? We'll stress the heart with a stress test. So either they go on the exercise, uh, on the, the treadmill, and they do exercise. At the end, when they hit the maximum predicted heart rate, or 85% of it, they get the injection. The heart's beating super fast. It goes to the heart, and it gets taken up by the heart at peak stress. So now we say, okay, now we'll take pictures, and those pictures will represent the heart when it's at peak stress. And we'll look to see if there's a we call it a perfusion defect, literally. That's what we call it. But basically, it's a mismatch. There's an area that has radioactivity, and then there's an area that doesn't. And then we compare it to the resting. That's a nuclear stress test. So we do that either with an exercise or with pharmacologic. So wait, so how does this compare? I mean, most people, I'm sure, have heard of angiograms. Right. How does this compared to an angiogram. I, I, some of the questions that I think maybe our listeners, if you just joined us, it's Health Watch Radio. It's, uh, we're talking with Dr. Jason Esses now about stress testing, but now we're talking about the way to look at the heart, and we're talking about using radioisotopes, uh, a, a way to measure the way the blood is being distributed through the heart muscle, but how does that compare to an angiogram? Excellent question. 
So the, when, I, when I start describing a stress test to a patient, so they'll say, okay, so you can see my arteries and you can tell me how much of a blockage that I have. So I say, well, wait a minute. Okay. We actually can't see the arteries. All this gives us, it gives us a suggestion if there's a blockage or not. And it tells us it hits an absolute cutoff. If there's a blockage that's 70% or more, like we mentioned before, the us, the cutoff, the threshold is 70%. At 70%, we know the heart can't sort of keep up. Even though it increases its blood flow, it might pump harder, it might increase its blood flow, but it won't be able to keep up with the demand. Uh, and at that point, you can get angina chest pain. So we can tell if there's a blockage 70% or more. If the stress test is normal, i.e. if there's no mismatch, there's no defect that we see when we compare the resting pictures to the stress, then all we can say is you don't have a 70% blockage, but you might have a 60% or 50%. It might be 100% normal, no blockage. You might have a 80%, 85%, 90%. We don't know the absolute numbers. We know relative. We know, say, 70% or more. This is a form of we call non-invasive testing. We don't actually go in and do a procedure. It's a non-invasive test. An angiogram... Is an invasive procedure? An angiogram is an invasive procedure. Uh, A stress test is not. Even though you get an injection, let's say you get an IV, but that we don't consider too invasive. Right, but so why is the angiogram? I'm, I'm, the way I always understood an angiogram was that you're putting, so to speak, a dye That's correct. into the blood, right. and then it's going to go through the arteries, and then you'll see the outline. So in contrast to a stress test, an angiogram is an invasive test. Invasive, we actually get inside the heart, so to speak. We get some wires, some some tubes, some catheters that go inside. An angiogram is the only way we can actually see the outline of the vessels. It is the, we call it the gold standard. That is the, that is the one test that we can tell, is there a 100% blockage, meaning a total occlusion? Is there 90%, 85%? What, what we do is as follows. Essentially, we get access into the, to the arterial blood system, the heart. There are two sides. There, there's the venous side. The veins, they have blood flow that returns black to the heart, back to the heart. And there's the arterial side, the arteries, blood flow that gets pumped from the heart. I remember, arteries away. <laughs> That's right. A-A. Right, arteries away, arteries are red, <laughs> veins are blue. For those of you, as, you know, who are listening, when you get a typical uh, blood test done, they go for the vein. So that's the venous side. That's, you know, the blood flow is nice and slow. The arteries... That's where we can get a, a more direct connection to the arteries of the heart. Now, there are arteries that go around the main pumping chamber of the heart. Arteries that come off immediately after the blood flow is pumped out of the heart through. There's one major artery called the aorta that kind of then branches out through the rest of the body. Immediately after that artery starts, there are little arteries that called coronary arteries that go around the heart. What we have to do, we have to get access to that. So in an angiogram, what we actually do, we gain access into the arteries by in, you know, like sort of putting in like a big IV. Through that IV, we can stick long wires that we can see on x-ray. We have the patient lie underneath an x-ray, and we can see the wires, and we can kind of push it back up until they hit the arteries. Once we have the wires that are in, we can in- take longer tubes, kind of flow over the arteries, 
we then take out the wire, and then we inject what you said, like the dye, D-Y-E, the contrast. And that contrast is something that we can see on x-ray. When we inject the contrast into the arteries, then we can see, all right, is it a nice, smooth outline? Does it look like a straw? Or does it look like a little squiggly line, like a trickle going through the artery? Most of it, at one point at the beginning, it's 100% open, and then it, then it tapers down to 90%, and then it opens up again. That's what we look for in an angiogram, and that's the only way we can actually see the arteries. Any other test, echocardiogram, EKG, stress test, it's the only, it, it's the only, we can't see it. Angiogram is the only way. Now, I should be, I should qualify my statement a little bit. There are certain types of CAT scans, and we call them CT angiograms. A CAT scan, that's an angiogram where you can inject contrast, where if the heart is relatively healthy enough, you can actually see the arteries pretty well. But you're still injecting. But you're still injecting. The only difference is it's not really invasive. You still have the problem with getting the contrast, which, you know, some people are allergic to it. It can be a problem for kidneys. It might cause kidney problems, but it's not invasive. However, most patients nowadays don't really fit into that right you know, right patient population to have a CAT scan. So the, the big risk of having an angiogram, I mean, obviously, you, your first choice is to be non-invasive. Correct. The first choice is to try and figure it out from its maximum. But again, like you said before, an angiogram's big advantage is you're getting a much more accurate uh measure of what what kind of blockage could be in those arteries that are feeding the heart and and if our listeners want to know how important those arteries are what happens when one of those arteries is blocked completely so what happens if you have a blockage let's say 70% or more so at that point the heart is not getting as much blood as it would like. And that can cause symptoms of chest pain, maybe some shortness of breath. Or it might be there might be what we call silent ischemia. Ischemia just means not enough blood flow to an area. You could have a silent decrease of blood flow. And patients might not feel that. Now, why do we care about that? The heart, it's not good for the heart. We don't like that. Let's step back for a moment and say, okay, who are the patients that we do the stress tests on and the angiograms, and then we'll, we'll get back to what happens if the, that the arteries are really blocked. What are we worried about? So, so who gets a stress test, who gets an angiogram, and who says, you know what, you don't even need anything? Which patient gets nothing? So when a patient comes in, the first thing that we do as a, as a cardiologist, we like to stratify patients. We like to risk stratify. And we like to say, okay, you know, is this a patient that's in the low-risk category? Is it in a middle-risk, you know, moderate, intermediate risk, or is this a high-risk patient? How do we decide? Do we just flip a coin? No. So we look at the patient. We look at how old the patient is. We look at what uh, family history the patient has. Um, you know, is there, a, is there heart disease in the family, specifically parents or siblings? Uh, does the patient smoke? Does the patient have diabetes? Is there high blood pressure? What's the cholesterol like? So we take those, those, let's say, uh, points, and we say, okay, if the patient doesn't have too many points, low risk. If you have a middle amount, let's say two to three, you're in the intermediate. If you're high, four to five. You should know if someone has diabetes. So we consider that you're high risk no matter what. Even if you don't have high heart disease, you never had heart disease, you never had chest pain. If you have diabetes, we consider you as if you're a high risk heart patient no matter what. 
So who gets the stress test? The patient who's in the middle. If you have the high-risk features, let's say you're 70, your father had heart disease at age 50, you smoke, you have high blood pressure, and your cholesterol is not well controlled. So you really, you're, you have all, you have five points already. So that patient, you come in with a little chest discomfort, that's typical, then we'll say, you know what? You have to get an angiogram. You don't get the stress test. You're a high-risk patient. We go straight to the angiogram. Most patients, we don't. You might say, wait a minute, we can get absolute information. We get direct information. Just everyone gets an angiogram. No. It's an invasive test. There are risks to it. We only do it in who needs it. If you're the middle patient, you get the stress test. If you're someone who's 30, you know, either uh, healthy 30 or 30 and maybe a little bit of high blood pressure, you know what? You, we can watch or at most we'll just do a treadmill exercise stress test. But for those middle group patients, they get the nuclear stress test. And what, what, do, we, what do we, so what do we do with information? What do we do with the patient? What do we do with that information? If someone has a, right. if someone has, let's say, an abnormal test, someone has an abnormal stress test, then we'll send them to an angiogram. If someone has a normal stress test, we'll stop. We'll say, you don't need the angiogram. So, you know, I, I know a lot of times when, when you talk to people about uh, radiation, I know when I take x-rays, people are very panicky. And we, we're using this nuclear and it's... Uh, what kind of risk is there with this kind of radiation to the patient? I mean, we're talking about how the angiogram is is the invasive, so that's what makes it more risky. Is there a risk from the radiation of this uh, of the nuclear? Of the, of nuclear? the nuclear. So it turns out that the radiation from a nuclear stress test is about the same, if not even more, than the radiation that someone gets from an angiogram. One of the potential risks of of uh, of tests with you know that use a X-ray is radiation. You have a regular standard X-ray that you might take of the lungs, so it has a very low level uh, of radiation. Maybe the equivalent of uh, you know a few days uh, standing out in the sun, because we get radiation every day from the sun. Then you have a CAT scan, which is a lot more than a plain uh, X-ray. Then you have a cat, then you have an angiogram, and you have a nuclear stress test. A nuclear stress test actually has more than an angiogram. So that's something that we should say, wait a minute. Why are we subjecting the patient to radiation more risks if we can give them a test that has less, less radiation, like an angiogram or a CAT scan maybe? So... The radiation that someone gets from a stress test, although it's higher than an angiogram, is not doesn't cause any problems unless you give someone a stress test every week. If you give someone a stress test once uh, every few years, if they need it, it doesn't cause any harm. So essentially the it's radiation... Like, it's like when we're taking x-rays in the dental office. When I take x-rays, if I was to stay in the room with every single patient taking the x-rays... That would be a very big concern. That's correct. But 
if the patient comes in and we take x-rays once a year and we're putting lead aprons on them and et cetera, so that's a much less frequent and much lower risk for the patient. And the benefit is the diagnostic information that we're getting out of it. That's correct. So, so your situation where you're getting tremendous diagnostic information, which is that information that says, hey, this patient potentially, potentially could have a, a heart attack. And because there is the risk benefit of, okay, we might have some small risk of radiation uh, danger, but the benefit is that we can avert a heart attack or other problems. That's correct. Now, one thing that I sort of didn't mention, which I probably should have mentioned at the outset is, do we just give a stress test to everyone or does it have to be some particular complaint? So actually the patient you know, has to come in and complain about something, I have to say, you know what, something bothers me. I, either, I have chest tightness, I have shortness of breath, I have chest pain, something's wrong. Someone who comes in feels fine. We're not going to say you need a stress test. Contrary to what a lot of people think, you actually don't need an annual stress test. Someone comes in with chest pain, that's when we make this risk stratification, we assess their risk, and we decide what test they need. But why? What are we all looking for? At the end of the day, stress tests, ex- you know, treadmill, pharmacologic, uh, angiogram, what are we looking for? We're looking for the blockages in the arteries. Why? Because patients who have blockages in the arteries, those are the ones that are at risk for heart attacks. Now, just because someone has a blockage of 70%, I want to be clear about this, just because someone has a blockage of 70%, 80%, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to get heart attack. It doesn't mean that it's going to go to 90%. It's going to go to 100%. However, if you have a blockage of 60%, 70%, 80% in one area, chances are you have some blockages in other areas of the heart. And heart attacks happen when a blockage, we call it rupture. You know, you have a blockage that's 20%, 30%, 40%. What actually happens is the little, think of it like a little hump, a little hill, and the top of that hill actually breaks off. When that breaks off inside the straw, inside the artery, blood clots form around it. And that blood clot can then form a 100% blockage. And when you have a 100% blockage in an artery, the blood cannot get past that, that blockage. And any tissue, any area, any muscle that is beyond the blockage and normally gets blood flow to help supply it with oxygen, all of a sudden is not getting anything, you get a heart attack. So the bigger risk, I mean, whatever, it's all the same risk, but the bigger problem is not so much just the blockage itself that's coming from the, the bacterial, from the uh, arterial plaques, but the actual blood clot that's going to be like a stopper Right, so that's what causes a heart attack. Now, can a stress test predict heart attacks? The answer is no. If someone has a normal stress test today, does that mean they're not going to have, that it's impossible to have a heart attack tomorrow, God forbid? The answer is no. We cannot predict it. So what's the point in doing a stress test then? So that goes back to risk stratifying finding who are the patients that we're worried about the most because we know we have tools and they're basic tools. They have medications, recommendations to eat well, exercise. We have some basic tools that we tell patients, this is what you should use to avoid having a heart attack, to reduce your risk for having a heart attack. Doing a stress test doesn't reduce your risk of a heart attack. But what does it tell us? 
It tells us two things. If a patient comes in with chest pain or shortness of breath, we say, okay, what is this? We're not sure. Let's evaluate it. So it tells us, is this patient having symptoms of a significant blockage? And we can say, you know what? He might not get a heart attack from this blockage, but clearly it's bothering him and it's not good for the heart. Blockages that are causing symptoms aren't good for the heart. We could decide then to say, you know what? Go for an angiogram. And if, yes, it's significant, 70, 80%, we can put in a stent because it'll help your symptoms. Will it necessarily reduce the risk for a heart attack? No. What can we do to reduce the risk of a heart attack? Medications. In fact, and this is what blows people's mind away a lot. If I said, okay, I have a straw that has a blockage of 70%, 80% in it, and I compared another straw that has 20%, 30%, and if I would ask them, okay, which one do you think is going to be the artery that's going to cause a heart attack? Most people choose the 70%, 80%, 90%. It's logical. You're almost at 100%. The answer is, it's usually that blockage, the plaque that's around 20%, 30%. Wow. And it surprises people. And the question, So why? Most of the time, the plaques, when they, these blockages, when they get to 70%, 80%, they're what we call calcified. They're hard. They're full of calcium. We call that a solid plaque, a hard plaque. It doesn't break off. Remember I said that you have like this little hill inside the artery where the top breaks off? What causes a heart attack is you have that blockage, the top breaks off, and then the clot sticks to it and closes it off 100%. That's how you get a heart attack. So the 70%, 80% blockages many times don't cause a heart attack, but it's the 20%, the 30%, the soft plaques that aren't really calcified, that haven't hardened yet. Those are the ones that typically cause heart attacks. But then you'll say, but we can't catch those. You do a stress test, it's not going to be, you're not going to see it. Even when you do an angiogram, you can do an angiogram. You can say, oh, it's only 20%, 30%. What are you going to do about it? That's, so that's where it comes back to the basics. That's where it comes back to, okay, using our tools. All right, listen, we got to get your, we got to figure out what your cholesterol and you got to control it. We got to get you eating the right stuff. We got to stop you from smoking. We got to improve your diabetes. We got to control your blood pressure. We got to get you exercising. People think, okay, all right, you know, I'll take medications. It's good enough or I'll do a stress test. No big deal. No, that's not how a stress test works. Yeah, the guy figures, all right, I did my stress test. I came out good. Right. Everything's under control. I'm good for a year. Nothing's going to happen. No, you can have a stress test today and God forbid a heart attack the next day because what causes a heart attack is not, it's not that 70%, 80%, 90% blockage. It's, it's that 20%. So why do we do the stress test? It's to identify what the pain is. We do it in patients who have pain. So if someone comes in, a healthy guy, 50 you don't, need a, you don't need a stress test. You don't need an annual stress test, only if you have pain. So one is to identify pain. The other is, if we really think, you know what, this is a patient that we're really nervous about, that, you know, doesn't look right, the EKG's a little funny, they don't have symptoms, but you know what, they're the smoker, they're the you know, high blood pressure, they got family history, they're right, right in the middle, and we can't tell are these symptoms, heart symptoms, they're a little tired when they walk, or they just seem to getting older, a little heavier, we don't know. So in that case, we do the stress test. So even though no typical, no classic symptoms, but we do want to assess some uh, the, the symptoms. So I, w- I want to ask now, in terms of who is the classic, uh, you know, when we look at men and women first, mm-hmm. are we seeing more of the blockage, the coronary blockage 
in the women or in the men? So it depends on the age. So one of the kind of like points that I mentioned when, when we try to calculate risk, one thing I mentioned was the age, the age of the patient. So we start counting age as a point towards risk in men at the age of 45. So if a male above 40, 45 or older comes in with chest pain, so you say, you know what? Okay, that's one point on the, uh, on the list. Do you have high blood pressure? Do you smoke? For females, it's 55. That's what we were able to find from decades of, of data. Studies that went back 30 years, 40 years. Uh, classically, it's called, we have the Framingham Heart Study. It's a little town in Massachusetts where they studied the whole population and they said, okay, we'll watch you. We'll get all the blood work. We'll watch your EKGs and we'll watch you for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, the rest of your life. They're up to the third generation at this point. They're watching, they, they, you know, they saw, okay, the grandparents and now the parents and now we're up to the, the, the grandkids. So we have this information over, over, over decades. What we, but one of the things that has to do with it, the difference between men and women, is uh, the menstrual cycle. And typically, let's say women, they'll start 50, 50 years old, or approximately late 40s, 50, early 50s. That's when they'll stop having their, their menstrual cycle. Menstrual cycle, the hormones, they're protective for heart disease. But after, once women hit menopause, 55, 60, it's like being the same as men. The risk is, is the same as, as men. And yeah, there are plenty of women who old enough, 70, 80, who can have serious, significant coronary disease. Obviously, it depends on how they live their life. Were they a smoker? Did they uh, live a sedentary lifestyle? Did they not eat well? A lot of it has to do with family history as well. On average, uh, if you ask me most of the time, are you seeing you know, men versus women? Yeah, you're seeing men, but uh, men don't live as healthy as women a lot. Right. Women are more careful about their eating habits, usually. Usually. You hope. Exactly. <laughs> and they're, they're usually the ones who, uh, even though they're, they're, they're in the kitchen most... Oh, I shouldn't say that. I have to be careful. <laughs> but usually they're, uh, they're, they're taking care of the meals. Nowadays, I don't know if it applies. Yet, they're the ones that are probably eating better, eating the right food, living longer than the men. Less stress. Stress has to do with it. Uh, being overweight has to do with it. A lot of stuff has to has to do with it. So let, let's try to summarize for our listeners what they should be thinking. So we said if they're not having any symptoms, if they're not coming in with shortness of, dre- of breath, and they're not in that high-risk category for whatever reasons that put them into that category, they're probably not going to need to have a stress test. Right. They're not going to need a stress test, and, and all the more so they're not going to need an angiogram. We don't say, okay, you know what? Let's just take a look. No such thing. We don't do that. We don't... We don't do the stress test. Why don't we do the stress test? What's the downside? You get a little radiation, but no big deal. I'm not doing it every week. I'm not even doing it every year. You don't do it. Because what happens if you don't have the symptoms? There are a lot of things in medicine where you'll do the test and it'll come back a little funny. And we'll say, you know what? It's, it's not totally normal. Let's do another test. And sort of one thing leads to another, leads to a procedure, and you might not need the procedure, and God forbid you can get a complication. We call that a false positive. So we have to be very careful when we choose what tests to do. So if you don't have any symptoms, no stress test, no annual exercise stress test, doesn't make sense. But the regular annual exam, they better do. Yeah, that you got to do. Listen, you got you to gotta have contact with your, your physician. You got to, because you know what? 
If you don't have contact to the physician, even if you feel great, when things start to fall apart and you don't realize it, a lot of times you miss the boat. Yeah, you need that, that regular baseline information for the physician to be able to look and say, okay, in 2010, 2011, 2012, this is what we're seeing, 2013, 2014. Everything looks like it's basically the same. If the next year something's changing. Right. It's a red flag. You, you know, you want to hear the doctor say, you know what? You look great. Everything's good. Your cholesterol is good. Keep it up. You're doing good. Maybe do a little more exercise. Watch what you eat. That's great. Your blood tests are good. Do you know how many times I hear a patient, you know, we see in the hospital, come into the office, they come in, they're 60, 65, 70, maybe 55. You know, I've been healthy my whole life. I never needed doctors. And all of a sudden, I have chest pain. I don't understand why. You know, like the blood pressure is 180 over 100. Their cholesterol is out of control. But I feel great. So those are the patients. A lot of times, you know, the, sh- the ship has sailed and uh, you're playing, uh, you have to catch it and call it back and, you know, try to do something. It's too late. You should see, let's say, the annual, the annual uh, exam. But stress tests, you don't need it. Now, one thing I should say, there is a select population of patients that we might say, you know what, let's just put you on a treadmill. We'll do a stress test just to see how well you do. Those are patients that are involved in, let's say, uh, high-risk activities or they have a tremendous amount of responsibility, like an airline pilot. We don't want to take a chance that an airline pilot is all of a sudden going to have a heart attack. So we say, we're going to push them hard on the stress test and say, let's say, you got to be in good condition. Uh, bus, well, I don't know about a bus driver, but someone in the army. No, we want to make sure that you're in good shape. So those patients, even though if they don't have symptoms, will say, you know what, I'm going to put you on the treadmill. But the general guy on the street, unless they have symptoms, they really don't need a stress test. If we're not sure, are these symptoms or not? Okay, that's a different story. It's a question of symptoms or no symptoms. But once we think someone has symptoms, stress test. If someone has symptoms, but they're that high-risk patient, so forget the stress test. You're going straight to an angiogram because if I do the stress test, and the stress test is not a perfect test. I mean, it doesn't catch everything. We said the gold standard is an angiogram. A stress test, a stress test by itself, I'll give you an example. A stress test by itself, just a, an exercise, a treadmill, no pictures. So if you have blockages, significant blockages, 70% or more, it'll catch it 70% of the time. That means it'll miss it 30% of the time. And it's only catching the things that are 70% blockages. Right, right. That's true also. But we only really care about the 70% blockages because we we don't... Even though, as we said before, it's the, the 20% that are the could that are cause the, the heart problem. attacks, but, but we can't prevent it by what would we do about the blockages? We So let's say you have a 40% or 50%. So we'll say, okay, now what? Go get an angiogram and we'll just put in a stent, a little tube that, that makes sure that it doesn't close down the artery. It doesn't do anything. Putting in a stent in a 40% blockage, 50%, it doesn't protect. Stents only help if you have those symptoms or if you actually come in with a heart attack, not just symptoms, a real heart attack, a real blockage, 100% blockage, 90%, the heart is getting damaged, then you need a stent to unblock it. But... Let's say, uh, I lost my train of thought for a second. <laughs> Back to- <laughs> Back. So someone who comes, so we're doing the stress test. And a regular stress test has a 70, catches things 70% of the time. If you add pictures to it, it bumps it up to 85%, 90% of the time. I mean, if someone has a blockage, real blockages, 90% of the, 85 to 90% of the time, it'll catch it if we throw in nuclear or another form of images. Actually, you can do an echocardiogram, an ultrasound of the heart with a stress test, 
and you'll get pictures also. But that'll bump it up to 85, 90%. 90%. But you can still miss 10% of the cases. We call that a false negative. We'll do a test, even nuclear, and the patient has blockages, significant blockages. We just can't see it. But yeah, these are real symptoms. These are real blockages. We'll do the, 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 the stress test when they really should have gone straight to angiogram. We'll do the stress test and we'll say, you know what? It came out okay. And it happens. That's a false negative 10% of the time. So what will happen? You'll send the patient home. They're still having real symptoms. But those are the patients that are at highest risk for heart attacks from the 20%, 30% blockage. Those are, it's a sign. People who have real blockages have signs that they're at risk. So we say, forget the stress test. Go straight to an angiogram. You're the one that goes straight for an angiogram. You don't get the stress test. So, so the, the main thing also is that you have to have a doctor that's quarterbacking this whole thing and making sure that they really know the patient and know who and what should be done for them. Right. That's where the art of medicine comes in. Yeah, yeah. The art. The uh, It's not just the cookbook. Okay, you have uh, your 55 male smoking and uh, family history. You have three points. Oh, stress test. No, there's a certain art to it. And that's where the training, the experience comes in. We need to say, you know what? This patient, the story that they're giving me based on their risk factors and the other, other information we have, this, he does the middle test. This patient, you know, that's where the experience comes in, the, uh, the art of medicine, which uh, takes a long time to develop. Yeah. It's not so easy. All right, terrific. So if anybody wants to get in touch with Dr. Jason Esses, what's the best number to reach at? Best number. My office number is 718-513-4456. I'm down the block. <laughs> 902 Quentin Road on the sixth floor. Uh, the neighbor. number again? The number again? 718-513-4456. Great. Thanks so much, and thanks for joining us again. It's my pleasure to be here.